Everyone and welcome to Ladies Night, the official podcast of US Chess Women. I'm your host Jennifer Shahadi and you're listening to the artist Huga of hugamusica.com and that is a song that certainly captured my heart. Oh Capablanca. His bishop was small. Thanks to everyone who supports the podcast through shares and reviews and Apple Live. If you want to get more involved in all we do at US Chess to empower girls and women through chess, please consider a tax-deductible donation of any size to our US Chess Women program and reach out to me with any questions. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Ladies Night. This is Jennifer Shahadi, and today we're going to do something a little different, and I'm going to do a Q&A podcast with some questions from friends of the podcast, as well as some of my students at the U.S. Chess Girls Club and some recent social media inquiries. So I'm going to kick it off with a question from National Master Laura Smith, she was a previous guest on this podcast, fantastic episode, go look it up. She's also a content creator, a mom of three, really such a positive energy in the chess world. She asks me, if I were to come back to competitive chess, what would my study plan be? Specifically, she says um, that I know you and I know you would commit months ahead of time with study. So hypothetically, if you were planning a 2023 tourney, how would I prep? Well, that's a great question, and she's absolutely right. I certainly would take a lot of time if I was going to play an over-the-board tournament to work out a bunch of kinks. So the number one thing is I would start structuring an opening plan. When I was at my peak of 2,400 U.S. chess, 2,350, 60 fide, My opening style was very sharp. That's where I got a lot of my wins, not necessarily in the opening itself, but because the style of my opening repertoire gave me positions that I excelled in. And so that's really tough. That's actually one of the reasons players like me struggle to kind of like hop in and out of chess, because if you have that style, you really have to stay sharp. It's not like I'm playing the English and the French and I can kind of like you know, just whiz back in and, you know, rely on my structural kind of knowledge of the systems. Instead, I really would have to just go back in and dig. And I would probably use Chessable, which my brother raves about to help me memorize. Um, And then I would also create a, a structure. And honestly, one thing that might surprise people is I think I might try to do something totally off the wall for me and play The Queen's Gambit. (laughs) I mean, I love the Netflix show, but it's also like, I've always thought it was a beautiful opening and it would be a way to make the process a little less repetitive, right? So it would feel a bit fresh, like a 
something different than when I played just before. Uh, I, I don't know if that would actually be good for my results, though, but it would be educational. So I, I might try that. But let's let's be honest. I've got a lot going on and I'm a very creative person. I love writing books. I just came out with Chess Queens. I'm under contract to write another book called Thinking Sideways, which is about strategies in poker and chess to not only get better at games, but to get better at life and to improve the lives around those around you. So Thinking Sideways, Chess Queens, my podcasts, my poker career. I think that the only way I would really undertake a big chess project would be if there was some kind of like creative or cinematic reason. I don't think I would do it just to prove to myself that I could because I did, you know, win three titles, three major titles, um, play all over the world, represent my country. Um, I feel like proving to myself that I could do it again uh, wouldn't really be enough considering all the other things that I could do. Although, playing a totally different opening and learning about the other country of chess, 1D4, would uh, at least satiate my curiosity. So I think that if I did it, that's how I would do it. And it would have to be attached to some kind of like film or writing project, I think, to make like the creative aspect of it fit my personality now. Another friend of the podcast, Chris Wainscott, asked that if I were to do that, because he had a similar question, um, what do I think has changed either positively or negatively about how women are accepted and treated in recent years? Well, you know, I'm always going to have a little bit of a different perspective in this because I'm a well-known chess player and I have, you know, a master level rating. So I don't necessarily think that the girls and women that we're targeting is really that applicable to my experience. And I think that's a really important thing to always keep in mind when you're trying to fight sexism and you wanna make the world more open, whatever world it is, that your experience is just one experience and that uh, it might not match the people that you're trying to reach. Okay, that said, of course, I observe a lot, you know, from the point of view of my girls club and my commentary and just my, you know, observations on the whole chess landscape for so many years. Uh, I think that what's gotten better is that there's more male allies, lots of men out there who are speaking up about how it's just not cool the way that women are sometimes treated. And it's also just not cool that there are so few of us. It makes the world more toxic when there's not a balance. Or I won't, I won't say it makes the world more toxic automatically. It definitely makes it more susceptible to toxicity, right? So that, I think, we're getting more men who clearly want a more balanced ratio. That's awesome because we they, they, are, they are the large majority in chess. So it, we want them to want that, right? Um, the other positive is I think the media does a better job with, like, treating women players with respect. Uh, less focus on their looks. You know, that's something I write about in Chess Queens. There was a time where even major chess websites would go on and on about the, the looks of the players, even the measurements. 
without talking about their chess games or their ratings. And that's not ancient history, you know, that was like, you know, 10 years ago. So uh, that's a major improvement as well. Uh, The only negative that I can think of off the top of my head is the way that social media can create a culture of bullying and anonymous bullying and trolling. So that can kind of like bring a lot of the misogyny under the surface bubbling up to the top. And it can be really uh, difficult for, I think, women and girls and gender minorities who are new to the game to feel like it's worth playing chess if they're encountering that. Now, fortunately, there are a lot of forces trying to counter that by shutting down trolls, blocking accounts. But yeah, it's, it's pretty insidious, I'd say. Uh, finally, one positive I'd say is that there is more awareness in the culture at large about the dangers of sexual harassment and sexual assault and, and just bullying as well, abusive behavior. Um, so while, while there's a lot, there's a lot to do, there's a lot of progress to be made in the culture, um, well, there is, there is some measures, right? So the U.S. Chess Federation has an abuse hotline, an abuse email, safe play guidelines. There's a Google form where if you um, experience an abusive incident at a U.S. chess event, you can report it. So those things weren't really around when I was playing super seriously in, in college. And so that's definitely an improvement. But, you know, obviously we have a long way to go because we still have so few females in the game. But I'm here for the progress. I'm here to celebrate the progress and yet also say it's not enough. <laughs> Thanks, you. Thanks, Chris, for your question. So next question. Daniel Lona, the fantastic podcaster and Twitter follow at The Chess Experience, that's the name of his podcast, he has some amazing guests. In fact, he has this really cool goal to have 50% of his guests be um, female players or, or coaches, creators, you know, all the whole gamut of chess personalities and um, advocates and players. So I, I was one of his guests as well. And I had a really fun time on his show. Um, I'll link to that in the show notes. He asked me, um, both in his interview and then again more recently, about more details on this topic, about my book Chess Queens and the impact it's had on girls and women and, and anyone. And specifically, he says, can you share a story or comment that moved you about girls and women who expressed how they'd been positively impacted by your book? Well, I'll I'll give two. On his show, I recounted a story about another previous guest, Charlotte Clymer. She's a a wonderful Twitter follow. She's a, a writer, and she's often on mainstream television, often talking about um, LGBTQ plus equality and trans rights. And um, I interviewed her for Ladies Night just as we were starting to become friends. Like I knew who she was on Twitter and she knew who I was in chess, but we, we started to become friends at that point. We met at a tournament in Vegas and I interviewed her in person. Um, that was one of the early interviews on Ladies Night, in fact. And at some point in the interview, um, the topic of books that she enjoyed came up and she mentioned one that she read as a teenager. And she said it really moved her and like it meant a lot to her because there was this great chapter about a transgender chess champion from Texas. Um, and she said it, it was called Chess Bitch. 
And I, I was, I, I froze because I was like, wait, well, like, this is, a, this is a joke, right? Like she knows I wrote chess pitch, but then actually it was kind of cool because for a second I was like, wow, this is like how it feels to have somebody talk about you when you're not there, but they're saying good things. <laughs> Usually you worry about the opposite. So it was a, it was a really sweet moment. And I, I, I think she did know, I, or maybe she momentarily forgot or I, I don't know what the reason was, but maybe it was like kind of like she had really good comic timing but she really did have me for a minute that it was <laughs> that she didn't know I wrote it. And uh, that felt awesome. It felt really good to hear that uh, it moved her. And of course, in it's a current incarnation. I even quote Charlotte herself as she talks about the uh, U.S. chess uh, transgender policy and how she believes it's a good model for other organizations. Side note, my recent guest, Yosha Iglesias from France one of the top 10 female players in France, um, recently announced on Twitter just a couple of weeks ago, so after we recorded our podcast, that the French Chess Federation has just adopted a similar policy. So big congratulations to the French Fed and to um, Yosha for her advocacy to making that happen. Okay, so another example of cool things about chess queens was I was playing poker in Monaco and uh, one of the players came up to me and said that uh, he uh, had been reading my book. And it was none other than the world champion at the time, Karei Aldemeyer from Germany. And that was just really cool for me because he's in his early 20s, early to mid 20s. And he just won the, the world championship. Great players learning like all the mixed games as well now. And it's really meaningful that somebody like that who you wouldn't really expect to be interested in this topic, to take the time to read it. I was really flattered. Uh, I have to say, like, really anyone who takes the time to, first of all, acquire my book, which, by the way, is currently on sale in a variety of places. Uh, you can get it at U.S. Chess Sales. They've been amazing, um, as well as on all the other usual suspects. I, I felt, I feel like anyone who takes the time to acquire it, but then also read it or listen to it, it it's really means a lot to me because it shows that they want me to keep doing what I'm doing. So in conclusion, if you uh, haven't picked it up now, you know that it means a lot to me for you to do so. Oh, we got another question from a new player who asked me, what is the best way to study chess? That's a question I get a lot, and it's, of course, very important knowing what level someone's at. I think for a new player, there's a lot of great resources online, YouTube videos, opening courses, of course, lots of puzzles, opening databases, uh, end games. But what I would say is, is two things, a study plan. So kind of like a structure of what you want to work on and how many hours um, per day or minutes. Obviously, many of you are very busy. Also, a community. Well, a community could be one friend to start, or it could be two friends, but the idea is people at a similar level or also a similar level of commitment to studying. So they don't even need to be the same rating class as you. They could be stronger. They could be a little weaker. You probably don't usually want somebody much weaker, but again, 
it's about that commitment to studying and getting better so that you're kind of matching each other's goals so that you can kind of keep each other motivated. I think that's incredibly important because everyone plateaus. If you're smart and motivated and new to the game, guess what? You're going to improve a lot at first because you don't know anything. So you have a lot to improve. But what's going to keep you going when you hit that plateau? A couple of things. If you can afford it, of course, a coach. But if you if you can't afford a private coach, it's, a, it's those chess friends and it's that plan, right? So those are things I would highly recommend. I, I'm on Twitter and I, I do follow chess punks. I know a lot of friends have found each other through that community. So that's one possibility. Uh, but just uh, try to be conscious that not only is it going to make your chess life more fun, but it's also going to make your chess better to find the right friends. I also got a question that I get quite frequently, which is kind of perfect for me since I'm the mom of a five and a half year old. What is the best book to get kids age three to six interested in regularly learning chess? Best book or app app as well. Uh, well, I love Storytime Chess, which is a combination chess book with uh, chess pieces that have little outfits on them. Um, super cute. My son loved it, especially when he was four. Um, it's a really good if you want to get your kids interested at extremely young age, like two, three, four, um, because a story tells you how the pieces move in these like fairy tales. And uh, it's very sticky with children and kind of just like that other pathway to get them interested in chess. From the point of view of apps, there's so many good ones. Of course, some some parents don't want their young children using iPads or phones, but if you do, um, there's a lot of good options. There's Chess Kids. Uh, my son was watching those videos for quite a long time. And I was hearing my old friend, Fun Master Mike's voice every morning with my coffee. Um, then there's also uh, Magnus's Kingdom. My son loved that app. It's not the more popular Magnus app that you might have thought of, like Play Magnus, where you play them at different ages. It's the one where... You're moving around this quest space and you are moving your avatar like the different chess pieces. So you have to find your way to Magnus's castle. But in order to do so, you need to acquire all these keys and unlock all these doors. And the only way you can do that is if you know 100% how the chess pieces move. And then there's also mini chess games along the way. Yeah, Fabian loved it. It really helped us get through the pandemic. And I have to tell you, Fabi's mom loved it at first too. That first time around, I just thought it was really elegantly designed. I, I thought it was a really cool game. Um, then maybe times three, four, five, six, seven, and eight, and nine around the quest. It was it was a little bit more expected. I think I feel like I'm describing a Disney movie. But yes, it, I, I highly recommend that for like five-year-olds four-year-olds who are interested in chess. And we also use Chess Matech for a little while. That's another app that my son liked. Actually, we recently ran in to none other than Magnus Carlsen in, in Las Vegas, where he was playing the World Series of Poker. And my son got a chance to meet him, which was so cool because, of course, he knows Magnus as the greatest chess player of all time. Um, so to meet him in the flesh was really exciting for a five-year-old. And uh, Magnus asked him about whether he used his app, the one that uh, I was talking about earlier, when you play Magnus at different ages. In fact, he asked Fabi, well, what age do you play me at? 
And Fabian doesn't use that app yet. So I was really excited that Magnus kind of pushed him in that direction. As a chess mom, I try not to be pushy at all. I don't want to put any pressure on Fabian. So if he's interested in chess, we go there. If not, we don't. So this type of like organic experience that can make him more interesting is so cool. Now, of course, I know it's very privileged to have the opportunity to just run into Magnus Carlsen in Las Vegas. But I do think that if you can kind of construct ways for kids to naturally get interested in the game, like maybe watching different chess-related movies that aren't about getting better, but can inspire them, you know, Queen of Catway or Brooklyn Castle, or even the old school searching for Bobby Fischer. That is a, a good way, I think, to try to just make them interested themselves, right? And of course, the Queen's Gambit, if you feel like you can pick episodes that are age appropriate, that that's uh, fantastic as well. In fact, one chess parent told me that they felt like the first episode was the most problematic and that a lot of the other episodes, it was like uh, easier to kind of screen for young viewing. So anyway, that is uh, my advice for getting very young ones involved in chess. And then the advice I gave after that is like, oh, what if they start to lose interest around seven, eight, nine? Uh, maybe you can like show them some movies or some TV shows to kind of like get them reinterested in the game. Another question I got was, will I do a world tour promoting my book, Chess Queens? Well, the way I see it is everywhere I go is a book promotion because there's already somebody to meet that I need to give a copy of my book to. There's always um, an occasion to maybe reach out to girls and, you know, get them more interested in the game. But so far, to answer your question concretely, I've had book events in London, also in Memphis and Columbus, in conjunction with the uh, chess nationals in those cities. And then also most recently, thanks to uh, WIM Beatrice Marinello uh, at the Marshall Chess Club, which was a particularly cool event because... I got to see some of my students from the girls club. I also got to see Emily Nguyen, the, the former Denker champion, as well as Alice Dong, who's on our women's committee. And it was a, a really special time. So Sophie Morris-Suzuki, who just came second in the junior girls closed. And Kimmy Liu, who was once a, a teacher in our girls club. Really very sweet to see so many people. International Arbiter, Sophia Road was there, as well as uh, Mr. Galvin from Brooklyn Castle. Uh, just a really superb crowd came out to support Chess Queens. I also had another question, speaking of my girls club. And this one was about a talented young player, Tunisia Saha, who's skyrocketing up the rating charts. Despite that, she sometimes struggles to win winning games. So the question was about how do you work on that losing momentum in a game? Well, the answer to this one is, there's a reason the cliche goes, winning a one game is the hardest thing in chess. Just like chess progress in your rating, chess progress in a game is not always completely linear. In fact, it rarely is. No one gives you a point because your sparkling outpost night or perfect pawn structure is so impressive. You still have to work for it. You have to actively convert it. So my first thought without actually having seen the games would be that she's not necessarily losing momentum, but simply struggling like all chess players do. 
with one of the hardest parts of the game, closing the deal. Checkmate. It's often a case that players of really all levels and ages rush the process. Rushing to just get that point, you got a good position, you got a good opening, and now you want the point. Rushing can also be counterproductive because when you're extremely aggressive, your opponent kind of only has one option, and sometimes it makes it a little bit easier for them. By contrast, being a little bit more patient, sometimes they can't handle the pressure and they make more mistakes. So that's one possible tip. Really depends on the exact type of issues she's having with closing. Another point, though, is time management and end game practice. Those are things that could definitely help. And when you look at games by top players, pay extra attention to moments where they trade one type of an advantage for another. But my suspicion is that everyone has this problem because chess is hard. And unless you're one of the very best players in the world, most games zigzag a bit. And the key is to stay present and to always look for the best move and not to think about the past. Not to think, wow, I was like really crushing a few moves ago and now I'm only crushing a little bit. Well, that's not that bad. In fact, I would say that's just chess. And if you think about how you feel, think about how your opponent feels. Well, you know, you used to be totally winning and now you're only a little bit winning. From their point of view, yeah, they're they're still suffering all game. So the chances of them making a mistake if you keep that positive attitude could be higher. Anyway, I, I love that question because I also feel like it resonates with so many chess players how difficult it is to convert when you're playing with a stubborn opponent. And what does that tell you? Be that stubborn opponent. Be that stubborn opponent when you're on the other side of the tough position and the momentum. So thank you everyone for your fantastic questions. I really appreciate them. And I appreciate all of our listeners and our supporters of U.S. Chess, U.S. Chess Women and our family of podcasts. So if you haven't already, be sure to smash the subscribe on Ladies Night and the entire suite of pods here at U.S. Chess. I am Jennifer Shahadi, signing off for this month's Ladies' Night. See you next time. If you like what we're doing at U.S. Chess to encourage women and girls to explore STEM fields, accentuate competence, and approach an even ratio with a focus on intersectionality, your donation to our U.S. Chess Women programs is always appreciated and tax-deductible. The U.S. Chess suite of podcasts, including Ladies' Night, are produced and edited by Jason Andre at Seven Season Films, Photography and Media. Please visit sevenseasonfilms.com to find out how to start your own podcast. Don't forget to listen and subscribe to all U.S. chess podcasts from One Move at a Time, Cover Stories, and The Chess Underground. Till next time, may every night be ladies' night. Now according to Sockfish, I got it all wrong. After slightly advantage I had nothing But my dear Capablanco You tell me We learn more from our defeats Who needs victory?